The first place that the Ten Commandments are mentioned is, of course, in Exodus chapter 20. But the commandments were rehearsed by Moses to the people here as we read in Deuteronomy chapter 5. As we read our Bibles, we discover that the entire scripture is made up largely of two subjects. One is the law and the other is the gospel. Everything that you read in Scripture belongs under one of these two heads. Everything that you read is either law or gospel. And while it is true that they must be differentiated, they're not the same thing. The law is not the gospel and the gospel is not the law. Yet, they are not to be separated. We must look at both of these together. Now why is that? Well, simply stated, you cannot preach the gospel unless it is upon the foundation of law and in connection with law. The very heart and soul of the Christian gospel is this great truth. That the Lord Jesus Christ in his life perfectly fulfilled the demands of God's holy law for his people. He lived that life that they couldn't live but should have lived. And then he suffered in his death the penalty of the law that they had broken on their behalf. So you have Christ in his active obedience, obeying the law, and in his passive obedience, bearing the penalty of the broken law. Though as one said, he was never more active than when he was passive upon the cross. Christ, Paul said, in Romans 10.4, is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. As I indicated last Lord's Day, the preaching of the law brings about conviction of sin. When you preach the law, you're telling people what sin is. And that leads us, even as a schoolmaster teaches us, it leads us inevitably and inexorably to the gospel, to Jesus Christ. The law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. It's not an end in itself. Those who are legalists are guilty of that. They preach the law and that's it. But the preaching of the law is meant to lead us to Jesus Christ. God has not only given the law, however, to lead us to Christ, but when we have come to Christ for salvation, the law directs us in holy living. It shows us how we are to live after we have come to Christ. The law is not a saviour, but it is a guide. And while believers are not under the law as a way of salvation, they are under the law as a way of life. It is a covenant of life. It is not a covenant of life, rather. It is a rule of life for the believing Christian. The law is not a covenant of life. It is a rule of life for those who believe. In other words, it's a God-given guide to direct our behavior. Now, when the Lord gave the law to Israel, 
He was codifying on two tables of stone that which already was in existence. You say, well, how, how come? Surely the law began when God wrote it on the tables of stone. No, that is not true. Think of the Sabbath. The command of the Sabbath was already in operation. You read about that in Exodus 16. Remember how the Lord told them, don't be going out on the Sabbath to gather the manna. You gather twice as much on the day before the Sabbath, but every other day you have to go out each morning to gather. If you go out on the Sabbath to gather, that's a sin. Sabbath keeping was already in force before it was written down in Exodus 20. You can go through the other, the other commandments and think about how that, for example, Cain was a murderer. Now why was he a murderer? Well, because God's law is, thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not kill. That's why he was considered to be guilty when he killed his brother back in Genesis chapter 4. That's long before the law was actually written on the tables of stone. And as I say, you can go through all the commandments and realize that they were already in force before they were written down by Moses. So the idea that the moral law, the Ten Commandments, is just for Israel is not true. It's not, a, it's not the, the case at all. For example, the Sabbath commandment, Jesus didn't say the Sabbath was made for Israel. He said the Sabbath was made for man. Mankind. Jew and Gentile. So the moral law is a God-given guide to direct our behavior. We have a duty as believers, an obligation, if you like, to keep the commandments of God. Thou shalt and thou shalt not. That's what God tells us. I do have a problem with people who will say that they are Christian believers but they don't seem to want to obey God. The Puritan Thomas Watson said, and I quote, They who will not have the law to rule over them will never have the gospel to save them. There are many who do profess to have been saved. They'll tell you when you ask them the question, are you a Christian? They'll answer in the affirmative, yes, I'm saved. They claim to be the children of God. But yet, when it comes to obedience to God, they don't want to obey God. And they'll tell you, I don't have to worry about the law of God. It has no jurisdiction over me. And yet, as we read the scripture, we discover that living a life of conformity to God's laws is not only the duty of a Christian, it is his delight. It's his delight. The Apostle Paul put it like this, I delight in the law of God after the inward man. And so the motive for seeking to keep God's commandments is love, because we love God. By the way, did you notice as we read the commandment again this morning, the Lord's mention of this in connection with the second commandment. Deuteronomy 5 verse 10. And showing mercy unto thousands of them that, what? Love me and keep my commandments. That's reminiscent of the words of Jesus in John chapter 14 verse 15. If ye love me, keep my commandments. 
Some people will argue, well, I'm not under the law. I'm, I'm just under the law of love. Well, I'm sorry, but the law of love is the moral law. The commandments of God. If you love me, keep my commandments, is what Jesus said. The motive for seeking to keep the commandments of God is love. It's a matter of love as well as a matter of law. Why should I obey God's law? Because I love Him. That's why. I want to please the Lord. I want to serve the Lord because I love the Lord. And that's what Jesus said. If you love me, keep my commandments. What's your motivation for serving God this morning? Is it that you're afraid you're going to get cast into hell if you don't? No, I don't believe that's the motivation at all. The motivation for believers to serve God is love for God. The Apostle Paul was a faithful servant of the Lord. And when he spoke of his service for Christ, he said in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 14, For the love of Christ constraineth us. Now, in that instance, he's not talking about his love merely for the Lord. He's talking about Christ's love for him. The fact that the Lord loves me is what impels me to serve him. John went further and said, we love him because he first loved us. So, the law of God, we talk about the Ten Commandments. It is that which sets forth our duty to provide the Lord with loving obedience. If I'm saved, I will want to do as my Father in heaven has commanded me to do. Now, there's a lot of misunderstanding when it comes to the law of God. Recently, I was probably foolishly, but doing it anyway following a discussion that was on a friend's page on Facebook about the matter of the Sabbath. And the subject of the law of God in general was being discussed on that post. But to go back to my old days of living in the United Kingdom, some of the rubbish that I read on there is beyond comprehension from people who claim to be Christians. I never read such absolute drivel in my life in connection with this subject of the law of God. And what it taught me is that there are so many people out there who have fundamental misunderstandings of God's word and of God's law. And there's a lot of things that need to be kept in mind when we look at the Ten Commandments. And we're doing this because it's part of the Pentateuch. But as I said before, the Pentateuch is foundational. That which is taught in the Pentateuch, you can carry on throughout the rest of the Scripture. It lays a foundation for the rest of the Scripture. And this is one subject in particular that shows that. The law of God is a subject that is discussed throughout the entire Old and New Testaments. But it's first mentioned in the Pentateuch. And there are certain things that we need to keep in mind when it comes to God's commandments. And I would like to look at these today under two main headings. 
I want us first of all to think about how to apply the Ten Commandments. If you look at the words in the Decalogue in Exodus chapter 20, just as they appear, they speak for themselves. They're very unambiguous. There's nothing that's difficult to understand. You just go down through each commandment and it's clear what God is saying. Thou shalt, thou shalt not. All the way through. This is what you're supposed to be doing. This is what you're not supposed to be doing. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Or if you like, you're not to have any other gods before my face. I'm not going to put up with any other gods. I'm not going to brook any rivals. You must worship God and worship God alone. And we go down through the commandments and we see that there's a very clear and there's a very unambiguous application of each commandment. There's to be no idolatry, the second commandment teaches us. There's to be no taking of the Lord's name in vain. Don't be using God's God's name as a swear word or as a punctuation in a sentence. You are to keep a special day for God. A day of worship, a day when you leave aside all the things that can be done on the other six days, the Sabbath. You are to honour your parents, you are to consider human life. You're not to murder, you're not to commit adultery, you're not to steal, taking that which is not yours, you're not to tell lies, and you're not to be coveting other people's property. It's very clear. But there's so much more to the law of God than what appears on the surface. There are so many things for us to appreciate about these commandments as far as their application to our everyday lives is concerned. Think about this. When something is forbidden by God, there is a corresponding duty commanded. That's the first point. How do you apply the Ten Commandments? When something is forbidden by God, when God says thou shalt not, there is an implied duty that is commanded there. Think of the first commandment. You are not only only to not have false gods, but of course you must worship and honour the true God and love him supremely. This is in the commandment. It's not stated in that way, but that's what we extrapolate from the commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That implies God is to be your only God and you're to love him above everything else. So it's not just a matter of, well, I don't worship other gods, period. It's that I worship the true God with all my heart. You see what I'm saying? There's something that's forbidden there, but there's a corresponding duty that God commands. And we can do this with each of the commandments. If we are not to take the Lord's name in vain, we're to use his name reverently. We're to exalt his holy name. We're to make much of his name. You think of the fourth commandment, the Sabbath. We're to keep that Sabbath as a day of rest. That's clear. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That really means to mark it off by boundaries. To keep it holy is to put a fence around it. 
That's a different day. That's a day that's marked off for God. That's what it means. Thou shalt remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. But notice how it goes on to speak of the duty of the believer in connection with that. While we're to keep the Sabbath as a day of rest unto the Lord, there's also implied a very clear duty of doing an honest week's work. See, that's in the commandment. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. People that are not willing to work. I'm not talking about people who are unable to work. I'm not talking about those who are physically unable to work. I'm talking about those who are capable of work but don't. That's a sin. You know what Paul said about that? If any work not, neither should he eat. If you're not willing to work, then Paul says you don't deserve to have food to eat. This is part of the fourth commandment. So you have this, yes, setting aside the Sabbath, a rest day, keeping that day for God, but there's the clear duty implied there of doing an honest week's work. Working hard for your pay. Then you've got the fifth commandment. It's a command to children. But let me just say this. The fifth commandment doesn't cease to operate when you turn 18. See, we're living in a society that has everything upside down. And there's a lot of false teaching out there. People have a worldview that's not scriptural. And the idea is that you... Yeah, do what your parents tell you till you get to be 18, then you do whatever you want. You don't pay any attention to anything that your parents say. You just get on with it. You do your own thing. Now, there is a sense in which when you grow up, you become an adult, you do have to make your own decisions, especially when you leave your home and set up your own home. But after I got married, and even when I had children... You know, I still consulted my parents for advice. I still talked to my mother and father about certain things. Not that I felt that they had the responsibility to make a decision, but they'd lived a lot longer than me. They knew a lot more than I knew. And they were there to help me. Whenever Jacob and others were going to be married, notice the involvement of their parents in that. It's interesting just to study that out. It was Abraham who sent his servant away to that place where Rebekah was to get a wife for Isaac. And it's not that in a sense the parents choose the spouse for the child. I don't think that that's necessary. But it is good that they are part of the process at least in terms of advice. You know, sometimes parents can see something that you don't see in a parent, in a person. And say, just, I'm just telling you, just telling you, you need to be careful. You, just, you need to be careful about this situation. I think that's what parents are for. I think that children who are properly obeying the scripture will take that on board and will take it seriously, the advice of their parents. But there's an even greater application of that when your parents get old and maybe get infirm and get sick 
They looked after you when you were little, and you should be looking after them when they're old. That's what the Bible teaches. You see, the fifth commandment is not only a command to children regarding honouring their parents, and that applies right throughout your life, but there's another aspect to this. It implies the duty of parents to bring up children properly in the fear, the admonition, and the nurture of the Lord. See, that's the other side of the commandment. Honour thy father and thy mother. There is an implied duty for parents to make their children honour them. And to earn that honour and respect. But also to demand it. You look at the sixth commandment. It's clear. You're not to commit murder. We know that. You're not to kill unlawfully. But on the other hand, you are bound to protect and to preserve human life. That's why, let me just state it again this morning, in case anybody would misunderstand, that's why every Christian is obviously pro-life. Every Christian is pro-life. Somebody who tells me that they believe in abortion on demand, and at the same time they say they're a Christian, I'm here to tell you, you're not a Christian. You're not a Christian. Thou shalt do no Murder is what God says. That's how Jesus interpreted the commandment. We have a duty to protect life. By the way, that's why we have a military. That's why we have the military. To protect the lives of the citizenry of the country. There are such things as just wars. Yes, there are unjust wars. But there are just wars. Wars that can be fought on the basis of the sixth commandment. When some of our fathers and great-grandfathers, probably great-grandfathers now, were over there in Europe fighting Hitler or over in the Pacific fighting the Japs at that time. Excuse me if that offends anybody, but that's what they were doing. You know what they were doing? They were obeying the sixth commandment because they were seeking to preserve human life by dealing with those who were unlawfully killing people. See, the the commandments have a very broad application. And you can apply this to all of God's commandments here. Every single one of them has a positive application and it has a negative application. Think of the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. I'd love to emblazon that over every one of these uh, movie production places in Hollywood. Put it over the entrance to Universal Studios or MGM or whatever it happens to be. Thou shalt not commit adultery. You know why? Because they promote it. That's how they make their millions Promoting adultery. Promoting fornication. And by the way, promoting gun crime as well. And these are the same people yapping about folks owning guns. And there's hardly a movie, as I understand it, because I don't watch a whole lot, without having a bunch of people being murdered with guns. What hypocrites. But the seventh commandment forbids adultery. 
Therefore, it implies that Christian marriages should be entered into, and that we do our utmost to keep ourselves chaste and pure. The Apostle Paul was actually teaching the seventh commandment when he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 2, Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. Paul said that's the answer to fornication. Christian marriage. This is the seventh commandment. Think of the eighth commandment. The eighth commandment obviously forbids stealing. You shouldn't be going into a store during the week and nobody's looking. You lift something off the shelf and put it in your pocket and walk out. That's stealing. Even a little kid in school, if he takes some other little kid's crayons, that's stealing. Thou shalt not steal. But that command also has this application. It implies the protection of other people's property. Don't get me started on socialism. Because that's what socialism is. It's theft. That's what it is. It's theft. Why should I pay for some other person's kid to go to college when I've already paid for my own kid to go to college? Why should that happen? But that happens in this country. That's, that's the system that we live under. I have to laugh sometimes when people talk to me about Great Britain, what a socialist country it is. Let me tell you something. Great Britain has got nothing on the United States. This country is infested with socialism every bit as much as my country is. Every bit as much. You see that in health care, people walking in off the street, they don't pay a red cent for care. Because of where they come from, or because it's judged that there's no way that they can pay, so that's it. They get off scot-free. Other people like you and me, we have to pay for it. Socialism, Mrs. Thatcher used to say, the problem with it is that eventually you run out of other people's money. And that's what it is. It's theft. But a lot of people don't think of it that way, do they? There are people who say they're Christians and they're socialists at the same time. I don't get it. Not only should you not... Here's the ninth commandment. Not only should you not tell lies. That's a given. Don't, don't lie. Tell the truth. Be honest. But that then includes being honest and upright in all of your dealings, including your business dealings. I knew a man once, and his practice was, if he saw something on the side of the road that had obviously fallen off someone's vehicle, he would quickly get out and hide it behind a bunch of trees or a hedge. And he would come back in a few days, and if no one had claimed it, he claimed it for his own. He thought that was legitimate. I remember him telling me one time he did that with a canoe. Can you imagine? Someone's going along the, the, the highway with a canoe, it falls off. This guy, oh there's a canoe, put it in behind a hedge somewhere so no one will see it and then come back later and get it and say it's mine. That's theft. It's also telling lies if somebody asks you, did you see it? And you say, well no. What about the tenth commandment? It forbids covetousness, which Paul says in Colossians is idolatry. It's idolatry. Covetousness. When you think about that, it implies that you 
are to be content with what you have and be thankful for it instead of wishing all the time that you had what other people have. You shouldn't live that way. Oh, I wish I had what he had. Oh, I wish I had what she had. Be content with such things as you have. Now, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't move to another job with a greater salary. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't want to have a house that's a little bit bigger to suit your needs. It doesn't mean that. But you are to keep things in perspective. So, just in short, to repeat what I just said about the law of God, when something is forbidden by God, there is a corresponding duty that is commanded by God. And then there's something else here, secondly. When something is forbidden by God, in the command, then the occasion or the cause of it is also forbidden. And what do I mean by that? Well, not only the sin itself, but whatever leads to that sin, or whatever encourages the commission of that sin, is also sin. How would that apply to the commandments? Well, take the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Aren't there so many things in our society that contribute to that particular sin? You're bombarded every day with images, with advertisements, with commercials, with stuff even in the shopping mall where you have to turn and look the other way, that promote that which is the opposite of chastity and modesty. There are so many things that contribute to this sin in our society. And let me tell you, everything that leads to adultery is condemned by God's law. That includes that which we look at, that which we watch, that which we feed our minds upon, the magazines, the TV shows, the movies. You know, I, I get so distressed <clears throat> when I see Christians posting things about some movie theater that they've gone to to watch some movie. I think to myself, really? Really? And you look up those movies and you see the little blurbs that there are in the, in the papers about telling you about what's in the movie. And it's R-rated or it doesn't have any rating because the stuff that's in it is so bad. And they as Christians deliberately go and pay their money to those organizations that produce that garbage and they sit there and watch it. Is that right? Is it right that we sit and, oh, oh, that's, ter- oh that's terrible, oh, it's not awful, and keep watching it, keep looking at it. Oh, oh that's terrible, oh, 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 that's awful, oh. Keep watching it. The seventh commandment <clears throat> also brings in the subject of that which incites and inflames lust. God forbids it. I could spend a lot of time on this. But we look at how some women dress, or I, I think I could say undress, so un- inappropriately. Those things are the occasion of sin, whether we like it or not. There was a judge in England by the name of Judge Pickles. It's a really good name. Judge Pickles got into serious trouble with the media because there was a woman appeared in the dock at a court case of his. I forget all the circumstances, 
But this woman had been dressed like a strumpet, like a harlot. And the judge referenced her mode of dress when he was making his judgment on that particular case. And the press crucified him for that. Oh, women should have no responsibility whatsoever in cases like that. Where some man lusted after a woman because of the wicked appearance that she had. But I was with the judge. I agreed with him. I agreed with him. Because there are ways that you can dress as a woman that make your body into a weapon. And the world knows it. And the fashion designers know it. And it's not even enough anymore to talk about where, well, make sure it's a dress or a skirt. I can tell you some of the so-called dresses and skirts I've seen leave nothing to the imagination. Modesty is the issue. But the world doesn't want modesty. And I don't want to be accused of being misogynistic. Is that the word? But the fact of the matter is, ladies, women have the upper hand where this is concerned. That's why Jesus didn't say, whoever looks on a man to lust after him, he said, who looks on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery in his heart. The Lord knows what the situation is. Looking upon to lust after. Can you be culpable in this regard by the way that you dress? I, I believe you can. And I think there are girls and there are women out there and they actually know what they're doing. They're encouraging lustful behavior on behalf of some men by the way that they dress. And that's a breaking of the seventh commandment. So when something is forbidden by God, the occasion or the cause of it is also forbidden by God. And then there's a third thing. When something is forbidden by God or commanded by God, We as believers are bound to encourage or to discourage that in other people. When something is forbidden by God or commanded by God, we are bound as believers to encourage or discourage that in other people. Let's take the fourth commandment. The Sabbath. The keeping of the Sabbath. Now, I am to keep the Sabbath day holy myself. But I also am not to be the cause of others breaking the Sabbath commandment. See, I should be faithful in worshipping God publicly on his day, not only because it's the right thing, but because it is an example as well to others of what they ought to do. People see you going to church. They see you leaving your house. And they, if they are watching on a regular basis, they know exactly what's happening. They know where you're going. People see you walking into the church and through the door. That's an example to others. Do you know that could be a means of conviction to somebody walking by here? Those people are going into a house of worship. Where am I going? I'm going to the grocery store. Or I'm going about my ordinary business. You might say, well, they'll never think of that. I'm not so sure. The Lord is able to use that to convict hearts. But it's the right thing to do in any case. The other thing is, since God tells me not to do that which is unnecessary work on his day, I don't need to paint my fence on Sunday. It can be done on Saturday or wait till Monday. 
If that's true of me, that I'm not to be doing unnecessary work on God's day, then I should not make others do it. Here's my next door neighbor. Would you come and paint my fence on Sunday? That's equally wrong, is it not? And there are many employers today who stand condemned on this basis. Oh, they may be in church themselves, but they're keeping their employees from the worship of God. And let me just say this, if Christians weren't filling up the restaurants on God's day, there's a lot of people who would get a day of rest. How about the fifth commandment? If children are to honour their parents, then those parents who fail to discipline their children properly are guilty of the breach of the fifth commandment. Because they're causing their children not to honour their parents. That's why the Lord was so hard on Eli. Remember what was said of him? 1 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 13. Eli was a priest of the Lord. He had sons who were wicked men. They're called sons of Belial. They were wicked. They were committing adultery with temple prostitutes. And the father knew all about it, but did nothing about it. 1 Samuel 3.13 says, God's words about Eli, For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knoweth, because his sons made themselves vile, and he restrained them not. See, Eli wasn't guilty of that wicked sin, but he allowed his sons to do it. He allowed them to do it and didn't restrain them, didn't stop them, didn't punish them. And God held him responsible as a result. And you can apply that principle, men and women, to all the other commands. The sixth commandment, there's in the law of our country a provision to prosecute people who are accessories to murder. You know that, don't you? We've all heard about this. There are people who harbour murderers. And if they're found to be guilty of that, they can be charged the same way as the murderer. It's called being an accessory after the fact. Someone has assisted or otherwise sheltered the murderer. And God's law forbids our being accessory to the sins of other people when we could have done something about it, but we failed to do it. And again, that brings up a subject that's very much a live issue in our nation today. Many of our politicians, you could say probably all of them in one particular party, and even judges, are guilty of the murder of the unborn. They have enacted laws, unrighteous decrees, wicked laws, not only allowing but ordering others to break God's law. You have the spectacle of the laughing hyena, otherwise known as the vice president, going down to Florida to speak at an event marking the 50th anniversary of Roe versus Wade. Why? Because she's objecting to what they view as draconian laws being enacted by Florida and surrounding states making abortion virtually illegal. They don't want that. They want to make abortion legal. They want to put it and enshrine it in law. 
that it has to be provided for by every state in the union. That's what they're bound and determined to do. What wickedness. They're guilty of the murder of the unborn. Oh, they're not the doctors that are performing the wicked, barbaric procedure. But they're the ones responsible for it because they are enacting it in law that it is to be done. Remember some time ago up in New York State, a bunch of laughing hyenas sitting in a press conference because of a statute that had been written in allowing for the butchery of infants up to the point of birth. What a sick society we live in. By giving consent to a sin, you're complicit in it. Remember the story of Saul standing there holding the coats of the people that were stoning Stephen to death? You can read about it in Acts chapter 8 and verse 1. It says there very clearly, this is the Holy Spirit now speaking, talking about the death of the first Christian martyr Stephen. Acts chapter 8 verse 1, And Saul was consenting unto his death. If you read the previous verses, chapter 7, verse 58, says that they cast Stephen out of the city, they stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. He's there directing affairs. I don't think any stone was thrown by Saul. But he was consenting unto his death. He was guilty. He was complicit in that sin. And there are so many applications of this principle. I think today of those so-called ministers who compromise with false religion. Men who are involved in ecumenical activity with false gospelers. They profess to be saved themselves, but they're promoting idolatry by joining in with ecumenical religion. Associating with, hypo- with apostasy. And they should remember this. If I encourage other people to engage in idolatrous worship, I'm guilty of that breach of the law of God. I'm also breaking that command. I'm guilty of breaking the commandment if I am an accessory to the breaking of it. Oh, what a wide application God's law has. It does bring every single area of our lives under its authority. What we look at, what we listen to, what we say, where we go, those we go with, are all regulated by God's holy law. And what we ought to do, as well as what we ought not to do, is mandated by the Lord's commands. I've had people say to me, well now you know the Ten Commandments, that was for back then, but that no longer applies. So I'll say, well, so it's okay now for you to steal? You can, as a Christian, you can, you can steal something. God's law doesn't apply to you. Or you can commit adultery. And go down through the commands. You can break all the commands of God. It doesn't matter. What utter nonsense is that? If you love me, keep my commandments. Now, I've been preaching what is essentially the duty that God sets forth in the commands. But I want to circle back to what I said at the beginning. 
which is that the law is our schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. You see, when you look at God's law, every one of God's ten commands, and you judge yourself properly in the light of that, you understand, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. Jesus summed up the Ten Commandments in Matthew chapter 22 in this way. He said, the first commandment is, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. That's the first table of the law. The second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. Do you do that? Do I do that? Surely when I think of the commandments of God, Thou shalt have no other gods before my face, yet all the time we have gods that we worship, things that we consider to be more important than the things of God. Do I always put God first? To my shame I have to say, no I do not. This is a a convicting thing, it convicts me of my sin. The Apostle Paul said that if the law had not said, thou shalt not covet, he would have not been really aware of the sin of covetousness. But then he said, by the law is the knowledge of sin. That's how I know that I'm a sinner. Romans 7, verse 7. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. By the law, he said, is the knowledge of sin. That's why we preach the law. So that people are convicted. They look at themselves in the light of the, of the law of God. And the law of God is a mirror that shows them their sinfulness. What does that do? It drives them to the Lord Jesus Christ. The great law keeper. See here's one who came and lived a perfect life. You take all of the ten commandments. The Lord Jesus Christ was the personification of obedience to those ten commandments. He is the perfect one. He has earned a righteousness which we need. Because when we look at the commandments, we understand that we are unrighteous. We're not right with God. We're far from being right with God. How can we become right with God? Through Christ. The one who kept the law for us. In fact, I would go further and say he kept the law as us. When he died on the cross... God viewed me as a believer as having died in him on that cross. All my iniquities on him were laid. He nailed them all to the tree. Jesus, the debt of my sin fully paid. He paid the ransom for me. That's why we can sing, free from the law, O happy condition. Jesus hath bled and there is remission, cursed by the law, ruined by the fall. Christ hath redeemed us once for all. Once for all, O sinner, believe it. Once for all, O brother, believe it. Cursed by the law and ruined by the fall, grace hath redeemed us once for all. Far from being the antithesis of grace law is that which reflects grace it shows us our need for grace and we thank God for one who has kept the law 
perfectly for those who believe. May we be those believers today. And may the Lord give us a heart to obey his word in every area of life. May God help us. Amen.